The sermon passage for today can be found on page 986 in the Blue Bibles. It's 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you now know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If you're, uh, if you're growing up was or is anything like mine, uh, then your daily experience wasn't your parents continually telling you lots and lots of new things. Uh, so new instruction comes occasionally as necessary, for the mo- but for the most part, once you hit a certain age, you've kind of already learned the basic necessities of survival in your household. From then on, for the most part, it's mostly reminder. It was your parents telling you a lot of stuff that you already knew. And this is not uh, contrary to what maybe you have thought or did think or do think because your parents were being difficult. It was on the contrary because we people, every single one of us, were prone to forget. So you get reminders. You know you need to clean your room. You know you need to take out the trash. You know you need to close that door. So parents, uh, maybe, maybe you're on the other side of that now, and maybe as you think about it, you notice how much of your parenting, would you say, is telling your kids something new versus telling them what you know they already know. Like much of life, what we see in the Bible is that much of gospel ministry is telling Christians what they already know. Much of gospel ministry is very simply reminder. And it doesn't seem like this is a bad thing. I think this is what we have going on here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul spends a whole chapter in reminder mode. So Paul tells the church here in this chapter four times over that he knows that what he's telling them is stuff that they already know. Look there in verse 1. He starts off, he says, you know. Verse 2, he says it again. You know. Down in verse 9, he says, you remember. Verse 11, he says it again, you know. These are things that they already know. Evidently, Paul saw that there was need for reminder in the church. But reminder for what exactly and why? Why would he spend 12 verses telling them what they already know? Maybe think about these two questions as we jump in. 
So, so first off, what is the reminder that Paul is giving them? It seems to me the reminder that Paul's giving them is very simply that the church can trust Paul's words about the gospel. That's what he's saying. Let me remind you, you can trust what I've said. So Paul senses a need to remind the church in Thessalonica that he and the other apostles with whom he's done ministry in that city, they're the real deal. They can be trusted. We can see this in the way that he reminds them of the, the fruit of their ministry. You see that in verse 1. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. So we didn't come to you and preach and it come up empty. It came up fruitful. That's what happened among you. You need to remember this. We see it in, in the rest of the passage. We'll get into it in a minute. How he reminds them of his motives in ministry. He goes into this a lot. He says, the source of our ministry, it didn't spring up from all these false things. It sprung up from genuine concern for you. We can see it in how he reminds the church of his methods in ministry. So the way we've gone about remind, uh, ministry, he reminds them, you know how we went about ministry among you. You know, you know. So 1 Thessalonians 2, it's an apologetic for it. It's, it's, a, it's a defense for Paul's apostolic ministry. Chapter 2 is Paul looking at the church and, and reminding them, saying, you can, you can trust me. You can trust us. But why is he saying this? So, so why this reminder? Why 1 Thessalonians 2? In short, they and we will, at some point, in some way, we will be tempted to forget that we can trust Paul's words about the gospel. So we don't, we don't know exactly what it was about the situation in Thessalonica that necessitated all this reminding from Paul. So unlike other uh, situations, the book of Acts doesn't tell us of any existential threat going on to the church in Thessalonica. The rest of this letter, it's, it's, it's not like Paul's letter to the Corinthians where there were obvious kind of on-the-ground threats to the gospel in this church. But what we do know from Acts and from this letter, is that there was still a big problem. And the problem here is that Paul is not able to be physically present with the Thessalonians. He had been there, but as he's writing, he's not. Which means, as we saw last week, this church is in a particularly vulnerable, unprotected position. So Mike Jones, Lord willing, will get into more of this next week. At the end of chapter 2, end of, end of chapter 3, uh, end of chapter 3. But think about their situation. So outside, what we know from the book of Acts is that, is the apostles only spent a few weeks with the church in Thessalonica. So outside of a few weeks that they had with Paul and Silas, this is a church that has never seen the gospel lived out. They have never seen an extended season of faithful gospel ministry, which means that this church is a church which could be especially susceptible to counterfeits. Counterfeit preachers, counterfeit ministries, counterfeit gospels, if they were to come along. So in this letter, Paul seems a bit anxious, anxious that maybe some charlatans are going to come along in Thessalonica, maybe even in the name of Christ, maybe even looking a lot like the Apostle Paul, but with completely different motives, completely different methods, and maybe even a completely different message. And Paul, as he's writing, he just can't stomach that. So remember from last week, one of Paul's emphases was that this is a church 
who receive the gospel in the best way that any church can receive the gospel. We saw this at the beginning of chapter 1. We see it in the next verses of chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And he just can't stomach the thought of this church, which has begun so well, being drawn away by smooth talk or slick methods of others who may come along with really bad motives. So what, so what could Paul possibly do being away from them? So how could Paul, from a distance, how could he get ahead of the threat of false teachers and false gospels? What could Paul say that would add lasting weight, lasting validity to the message that they've heard? What could Paul remind them of that would confirm that he himself is the real deal apostle, that his ministry, that his message is true? Well, before we get into what Paul says, we should ask, so, so I wonder with you, how do you know if someone's ministry is legitimate? How can you tell that the ministry that someone is preaching is true? I think, I think many of us would go to things like, well, their the- theology is orthodox. Um, or we'd say they're, they're very obviously gifted teaching. Or we say, well, I listen to them in their arguments, they're airtight. What they say, it's uncontrovertible. And these things are good and true, or could be good and true. But what about Paul? What What does he say? So here is Paul writing to this beloved church with an aim to convince them that they can trust that the message he's delivered to them is true. He wants them to be rooted and established in the one true gospel. So, So to what does he appeal what does he remind them of? Does he, does he tell them of his training? Remember how I was trained in the gospel? Does he tell them of his gifts? Does he tell them of his acumen? Does he remind them of the airtight arguments that he had while he was among them? Well, at least here, no. It's none of these things. Instead, Paul makes the argument that the church in Thessalonica, that this church in Northern Virginia, we can trust the message because it's been validated by his character, his character. Look at verse 10 of chapter two. You are witnesses, Paul says, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct to you believers. Paul's telling us that the thing that authenticates the truthfulness of the Christian message is the Christian character of the one giving it, at least in this case. I think this is worth us thinking about. So so think about your own life, Think of the people in your life by whom you have been or are being theologically, spiritually, morally formed. And here's the question. Do you know their character? So so maybe they know a lot of theology. Maybe they have airtight arguments for the faith. But are they godly? Does their life match the message? So I know, there are, I know there are books, there's the internet, all of that. It's not realistic for us to personally know every person from whom we learn about the faith. But if 1 Thessalonians 2 teaches us anything, it's that we've got to have a category for the fact that character matters in Christian leaders. As believers, we must care about the character of the people to whom we're entrusting our spiritual formation. It is biblically required that the life of a true pastor, a true spiritual leader, match the content of the true gospel. A person's life, their ministry, their motives, their methods, they must commend the gospel 
or they're not the real thing. This is what makes them worthy of trust. It's what makes the gospel very practically acceptable. That is, it makes people able to receive the gospel. So just think about it. How many, how many people are currently deconstructing the entirety of their belief system because the person who taught it to them turned out to be morally bankrupt? This is why Paul, at least here in this letter, as he seeks to authenticate the trustworthiness of his message, he reminds the church here not of his theology, his training, his giftedness. He reminds the church of his character, about, about the fact that he himself has commended the message with his own life. Listen, listen to what he says there in verses 3 through 6. So here you'll notice as we read it, he uses the word not a lot, right? So basically here in verses 3 through 6, Paul is giving us kind of the photo negative of gospel ministry, right? If you want to see what it's not, then we can look at these nots, right? Look at verse 3. He says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. All right, Paul's drawing, up, drawing our attention to the fact that the reason why someone enters into and carries on in the ministry, it totally matters. It does matter. So we've got to be aware, as the church, we've got to be aware of the fact that just because someone has a title or a position or a following or a platform, none of this in itself means that they're actually seeking the good of the people to whom they're supposedly ministering. What we learn from this photo negative of gospel ministry is that it's totally possible for someone to be in quote-unquote Christian ministry with very unchristian motives. What could this look like? How would we tell? He goes on. Look back in verse 3 through 6. He says, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul, Paul says that he himself he never came with impure, deceitful motives. But it brings up the question, if someone did, if someone did come to the church with impure, deceitful motives, what would that look like? What are some impure motives which, if combined with some sense of gifting, could land someone in a, in a position in ministry, a platform in ministry? It seems like one of the things that he's describing is, is something like vanity or pride uh, maybe we call it vainglory. So verses 4, verses 6, Paul speaks very plainly of the fact that there will be some spiritual leaders who are in it because they love the praise of men. They love to please people. There will be people in ministry who love to be in ministry because they love to be in front of people and tell people what their flesh wants to hear. So listen, I, I just encourage you as, a, as kind of a point of application if you find yourself listening to a teacher who always tells you what your flesh wants to hear, maybe that's a red flag. This, Paul says, is called flattery. It's flattery. Flattery is when you, you construct words to gratify someone's vanity, to scratch what their, itches, what their ears itch for. So flattery, flattery does this in a ministry. It, it seeks to understand what people need to hear in order to feel good about themselves or to, 
or to kind of bolster the positions that they've already come to. And then it proceeds to heap on words that would affirm that. And this is why flattery and the gospel are diametrically opposed. They're oil and water. Because you cannot simultaneously indulge someone's vanity and at the same time confront their sin and tell them of a need to be saved from their sin. There are people, we got to know, there are people who make a living, there are people who make a killing, putting on a hat of spiritual or political or social authority and telling a certain subset of people exactly what they want to hear. And this may be entertaining, it may be satisfying, but it's not ministry. It's vanity. It's flattery. This is one reason why or a path that a false teacher may find themselves in a position of authority. Another is greed. Paul flags this in verse 5. He says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. Why do false teachers target Christians? Why do they target the church? Because there's money to be made there. So in the New Testament context, including here in these early churches, it was totally possible and normal and expected that self-appointed apostles would come through a city and prey on believers. They would, they would take hospitality. They would take money. They would, they would uh, assume some point of status. They would accumulate wealth. And this is why, if you think about it in context, this is why Paul was so adamant that even though he would have been well within his apostolic rights to make a living off his preaching of the gospel, he says, that's good and right. I should do that. I could do that. He refused to do so in certain places like Thessalonica. Why? Why, why did he choose a, a man who was totally gifted, especially called, why did he choose not to make his living off the preaching of the gospel? It was that he wanted to make sure that people knew that the purity of his motives in that early church. He was self-supported in these areas. He took not a dime from these churches to whom he was ministering. For the sake of the reception of the gospel message, he refused to be lumped into, into that group of preachers who preached for a false gospel for greedy gain. He wanted to be able to look back on his ministry, which he could, and say, I came to you and I took not a dime. I gave you only the pure gospel. You need to remember that. So Paul wants the church, he wants us to know there are people who put themselves out there as ministry leaders who are greedy for gain. It's not, this isn't difficult to do, is it? Especially today with all the platforms that are possible. You can write a book that scratches an itch. You get a Go on a conference tour, you start a YouTube channel, whatever it is, possibilities are endless. There's a lot to be gained in a platform of ministry. The question is worth pondering. So listen, if you, if you're, maybe if, you're, if you think of the people you follow, if you're following a popular, maybe controversial public influencer, it's not, it's not crazy every now and then hit pause and just ask, all right, what is this person set to gain from this platform? Might be a helpful question. The question for us, I think, in light of what Paul's saying here, is are we being watchful? As individuals, as the church, are we being watchful? So not paranoid, right? We're not looking for the devil under every rock. But are we being watchful? Are we being discerning? Do we have a category for the fact that there are some people who use the name of Christ for vanity, for, for greed, as a means of gain? Do we have a category? You know, Paul uses the word deceit. To say that, uh, to say that some people set out with deceit, it, it inherently means it kind of has within it the, the, uh, the truth that 
it's going to be, the false gospels are sometimes going to be hard to detect. It's deceitful. It'll sound good. It'll be hard to discern. So it's just helpful for us to know false doctrine has no camp, right? It's a chameleon. It'll change itself to look and feel good to, to, def, to whatever way we define good. Are we watchful? This is, the, this is the photo negative of gospel ministry. Paul wants us to be aware of it. But if this is the, if this is the photo negative, then what is the real picture? So what's the, what's the alternative to a ministry of flattery and vanity and greed? And if Paul was not among them, if he wasn't among apostles who operated like that, with those motivations, with those methods, then what was he like? <clears throat> Look at verse 3 again. He says, Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. All right, so, so why was Paul not deceitful? Why was he not vain or, or greedy for gain in his ministry? Why could the church, why can we trust Paul? He says one thing is because his was not a ministry of flattery. Rather, it was a ministry of stewardship. You see that in verse 4? So what Paul had, the gospel, it did not come from him. It was not his so the gospel of salvation in Christ, it belongs to God. And in God's providence, God had given, he had entrusted this gospel to Paul. Paul had not come up with a solution to people's problems, which he was now peddling on Shark Tank, right? No, Paul had been given something. He had been entrusted with something, and he had zero ownership permission to alter it or to barter with it. The gospel which belongs to God which has been eternally decreed by the Father, Son, and Spirit, has been entrusted to Paul. His role now is what? What's a true minister of the gospel? It's a steward. His role is faithful stewardship. Not vanity, not greed, not flattery. Stewardship. This is the real thing. This is the real ministry. Ministry is stewardship of the gospel. And his point, what the Thessalonians need to remember, is that he was stewarding it so very carefully. He was, while he was among them, he was seeking to commend the gospel in every way by his motives and his methods. And he's saying, listen, if you look back on this, if you remember this, if you cling to this, then you'll also remember against any other counterfeit minister or message, you'll remember that what I said was true. Then you can cling to it even when I'm gone. It's really interesting that this is, a, this is a letter which, unlike other letters, Paul demands. Actually, at the, if you go to the end of the book, chapter 5, verse 27, he demands that this letter be read in front of all the other members of the church. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord that this letter be read with all the other brothers. Why is this? Why would he be so emphatic? Because then and now, Paul knows that opposition to the gospel, to the one true message, it's going to come. So because of sin, because of the flesh, because of the world, because of the devil, we are going to encounter messages that tempt us to question what's been handed down to us by the apostles. I'm assuming that this has happened to us this week. Has anybody experienced that, even this week? 
Anyone, in light of the current cultural climate, have you been tempted to maybe rethink or maybe rework the message that the church has heard for the last 2,000 years that's been handed down from the apostles? I'm sure we have. The temptation is there. It's real. But here's the message Paul's giving here. We, the church, you, church, we can take Paul at his word. We can take Paul at his word. You see what he's saying? His preaching did not stem from error. He was not wrong. It was not diluted by his personal impurity or deceitful methods or ends. Paul's is a message which has not been contaminated by sketchy motives. He was not manipulated or motivated by, by greed or the praise of men. Paul's message, as preached in his day, as preserved in our day, it's true. It's undiluted truth. So listen, when Paul says, this is a lot of our New Testament, right? All these letters written by the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written through him. And when he says here in other letters that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, we can take him at his word. It's true. When he says that Jesus humbled himself, took on the form of man, he's not lying. When Paul says that Jesus lived a life completely without sin, that Jesus allowed himself to be crucified, and that the whole point of the crucifixion was that Jesus was taking on him, on himself, a curse for sin that hung over all people. When Paul says that Jesus died for sinners to bring us back to God, when he says that Jesus rose from the dead and that he was glorified and that he's coming back for us and we'll live with him in glory forever. And listen, when Paul says, when he says that there's a certain way to live life which has boundaries, and those boundaries are actually freedom. They're freedom from the sin to which we were once enslaved. When Paul says all these things, things on which we bet our lives, things on which we bet our eternity, the point is this, he is not lying. This is the message that he received from God himself. This is the message that he bolstered by his own life, that he commended by his own way of life among, among the church in Thessalonica, and he's telling the truth. Paul was not spouting some man-made message for greedy gain or self-promotion. When Paul said all these things in Thessalonica, when we read them in our Bibles, we must know, we can believe that they're true. It's true. The message that we've received, the message that you've received, Christian, the message on which you've banked your entire eternity is true. You're not the crazy one. It's kind of the message of the New Testament. Listen, when you, you're not crazy for believing in the incarnation, you are not crazy for believing in the crucifixion. You're not crazy for believing in the ascension. You're not crazy for believing in the second coming. You're not crazy for believing that when Jesus offered up his life for sin, that that was the payment for your sin, that you've been redeemed by that blood. That's true. That's the message that's been handed down to us, and it's true. You can believe it. You believe it now, and you'll see it later. So Paul sought, you see what he's doing here? He's, he sought to live his whole life, his whole ministry in a way that commends that message. He takes so much care in his character, in his motivation, all these things to, to, be, to commend this, this amazing message. And that's what he wants them to remember. You know, you know, you remember, you know. And that's why here in chapter two, we have not only the photo negative, we also have the picture itself of true gospel ministry. So we've spent our time so far, we're seeing, seeing what ministry must not be. We'll, we'll round it out 
for these last few minutes to think about the real thing. So what, what does faithful gospel ministry, what does faithful gospel stewardship look like? How would we know it? How would we tell once we've seen the real thing? Has anybody ever worked as a bank teller? Anybody here? I never have. I have friends who have. They, and that one of the jobs of a bank teller is to, tell, is to be able to recognize counterfeit currency. And, and the main way you recognize the counterfeit is that you study the real thing. You know the ins and outs of the real thing. I think this is, has to be true of the church with the gospel, and I think it has to be true with, with gospel ministry. We need to know what the real thing is so that we can recognize a counterfeit. Thankfully, we have a good picture of that here. All right, so what is faithful gospel uh, stewardship and faithful gospel ministry look like? Ministry that commends the message. There's a lot here. I, I want us to see four things, though, four things. Number one, true gospel ministry is courageous. A counterfeit ministry sets out for personal gain, but true ministry sets out for and is ready for personal loss. It's courageous. Look, at, look back in verse 2. Paul says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Philippi, the, what happened in Philippi was completely embarrassing. It was shaming for the apostles. They had been... They'd been singled out, they'd been stripped, they'd been beaten, they'd been imprisoned, all these things. They knew that when they moved on to another town, this was likely what was going to happen. And Paul says, you know what happened, and you know that when we came to you, you know exactly what we did. We held out the gospel to you, just like we're called to do. You know, again, by means of application, I think a good question to ask concerning the people that, that we listen to, that we follow, you know, it's... A good question is not only what this person is set to gain by the, their ministry. Maybe another good question is what this person is willing to lose because of their ministry. Gospel ministry is courageous. Counts the costs and it steps forward. A second thing. True gospel ministry is tested. It's tested. Look, verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man but to please God, who tests our hearts. Paul, Paul wants to make it, make it really clear that he's not just some guy who has a sense that he's God's man, right? So Paul knew through personal experience, he knew through inward conviction, he knew through outward validation that he had been chosen and approved and set apart as God's messenger. This is why when he, when he writes and he instructs other churches who are selecting leaders, he asks them to do what? He asked them to examine those who would be their leaders, their pastors. Test them. Test their character. Test their gifts. Only after they've passed these tests should they, should they be listened to as spiritual authorities. It's in this light that Paul's holding out his own life example to them when he's seeking to commend the message of the gospel. Verse 4, he says it right there. We have been approved by God who tests the hearts. Paul knows he has two witnesses to his character. He has the church itself who can see the outward ministry, and he has God himself who sees his heart. God tests us. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct toward you believers. Now, obviously, obviously the Lord has no perfect servants holding out the gospel here on earth. 
It's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that that the Lord does require legitimate godliness in his servants. We read the qualification for elders earlier on in the service, right? What are they? With the exception of being gifted to teach, what are they? But character qualifications. What a Christian should be, an elder is. He must be. And again, in our, in our time of kind of unprecedented access to teachers, right, books, blogs, online, whatever it is, the point is, listen, before we go kind of making life-altering decisions based on what some of these popular, te- popular teachers say, it'd probably be wise to, to ask, by whom has this person been approved? What tests of character has this person past? Is he godly? How would I know? A true gospel minister is one tested and proven and approved, not only in gifting, but in character. And what's this, what does this character look like? I think we see this in Paul's next point. Number three, true gospel ministry is motherly. True gospel ministry is motherly. Look at verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. All right, Paul would have us to pause and imagine for just a moment. Imagine a mother holding, caring for her newborn baby. So have that picture in your mind, right? What must be true of that mother? She must be patient, right? She, know, <laughs> she must know that she's going to get spit up on, right? That there's going to be irrational crying and complaining. She must be calm, right? She is the one in this relationship who brings the emotional temperature down. She must be present. She's with the child. It's no good being apart. She cannot be rough with this child. She, she risks actually legitimately hurting the baby. It does no good for this mother with her position of authority to throw her weight around with an infant. She loves this child, so she's gentle with it. In this, Paul says, that's gospel ministry. You know, it's not uncommon for us to think about the reality that, that motherhood is ministry, which it is. But we rarely think about the reality that for true gospel leaders, ministry is actually motherhood. It's gently, it's patiently, it's calmly, it's lovingly caring for spiritual children. This is ministry. There is an appropriately maternal nature to true gospel ministry. It's not severe, it's not harsh, it's not hard, it's not dunking on people on the internet, it's not owning people. It's tender. It's warm. Look what he says in verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Ministry being maternal means that there's an inherent self-giving. There's a sacrificial element to ministry, right? So again, think of that mother with her newborn baby. All right, mother and baby, they're together. Now, which one of those, 
Which one of those two people in that situation is required to give themselves away for the other? Who's required to do the sacrificing? Who's the giver? Who's the one giving literally themselves away to the other? It's the mother, isn't it? And Paul says, in gospel ministry, it's the leader. It's the minister. This is how you know he's the real thing. The leader's not there for selfish gain. He's not there for accolades. He's not there for promotion. The leader is there to care for, to tend to, to nurture, to protect. And he does this by giving his own life. A mother's life, a mother's life is a continual giving of herself away to her child. And Paul says this is what gospel ministry is. It's how you know it's real. So listen, as you as you choose who to follow in your Christian life, as you choose your pastors, as you choose your other spiritual mentors, your influences, it's probably wise to ask, do they pass the maternal test? Are they gentle with people? Or do they tend to speak and act harshly? Are they patient? Or do they seek to intimidate? A leader who throws their weight around like a bull, no matter how theologically sound they are, is not doing true gospel ministry. And following such a person, when you hitch your wagon to that train, it's, it's dangerous to your own spiritual health. The manner in which gospel ministry is conducted, it matters. It matters. And a true gospel minister, according to Paul, is gentle among people, like a mother with her own kids. It's a picture. All right, fourth and, and finally, a true gospel ministry is fatherly. A true gospel ministry is fatherly. Look at verse 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All right, so what we're seeing, true true gospel ministry, it's both maternal and paternal, right? It's motherly and fatherly. And this makes sense because God himself, who is a father, is figured as both paternal and maternal in the Old Testament. Isaiah 66, 13. He compares himself as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God, God dearly loves his children. This is the theme of the service. This is the story of the Bible. And in that love, he comforts his children like a mother, and he has compassion on them like a father. And what Paul is saying is that these same characteristics must be true of those who've been called to represent Christ here on earth as spiritual authorities in the church. A pastor commends, he authenticates the gospel of God to his people by the obviously imperfect but legitimately earnest way that he seeks to parent them in the gospel, maternally and paternally. For you know, he says, how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. glory. Maternally, a pastor will be gentle, will be caring, Paternally, a pastor will be encouraging and comforting. He's one who spurs us on to keep going in the faith when we're tempted not to. Don't you just love what Paul assumes will be true of a pastor, a people who are appropriately fatherly? It's just amazing. 
So in this kind of ministry, there will be exhortation and encouragement, right? So those two, two words there in, verses, in verse 12, the two words are basically kind of conveying, conveying the same idea, encouragement, comfort, assurance. So the picture of a fatherly gospel ministry is one which will, in which encouraging words will be the norm. This is just what's happening in a, in a fatherly ministry. Encouragement, exhortation, care. I wonder, I wonder, can you think of the last time someone took the time to say something specifically encouraging to you? Maybe you can't, but maybe you can. What's the effect of genuine encouragement? It's, it's wind in the sails, isn't it? It's, it's breath for your spiritual lungs that when you're breathing feels shallow. Encouragement is meant to be such a gift found within the church. Yet, does anything come less easily to natural man than encouragement? Think of, there are just so many things that stand in the way of encouragement, aren't there? Pride. Uh, maybe just the fact that we're actually blind to good things in other people. Self-centeredness, jealousy, conceit. Listen, here's an application for you. Here's a to-do for you. Would you do this? Would you, would you think and would you just, would you think about spiritual life that you see in the church? Would you make note of it and would you verbalize it to someone? Make note to encourage someone in the church. So according to, according to this passage, leaders ought to be setting the pace in this, right? So pray that we would. But also you make a note. Think of something that's true of someone because of the gospel that wouldn't be true of them otherwise and point it out to them. Encourage them. The, the picture, will wrap up here, but the picture of a fatherly gospel ministry is also one in which serious, sincere gospel charge is given. People are employed. They're, they're, they're pleaded with. They're charged to mold their lives to the shape of of the gospel. We need this. We need people to spur us on in the faith. We need it. The truth is we are, we are all susceptible to slowing down, to slacking, to, to losing steam. We are susceptible to, to faltering in our motivation towards discipleship and obedience. Right? Maybe, we, maybe there are sins that we left long ago that all of a sudden... We're coming back to them. Maybe, maybe we left lifestyles because of the gospel, but now, now the grass seems greener on that side again. Maybe, maybe just this whole Christian life is just exhausting. We talked about it last week. When we sign up for the gospel, oftentimes we sign up for a life that's harder than the one we had before. If that's you, let me, let me implore you. Jesus, Jesus is worth it. Eternal life with him is worth it. Jesus Christ is worth your whole life. He is worth you giving up that sin. He is worth giving up that relationship that you knew you had to leave. Christian, remember, let me, let me remind you what the grass looked like on the other side. Remember, you used to live in a kingdom of darkness and you were miserable there. You weren't even a citizen there. You were a slave. That's how the Bible pictures our, our lives outside of Christ. But the truth is that now, God has called you out of darkness 
and into the light of the kingdom of his beloved son. You who used to be a slave, you're now a son. You have God as your father, you have Jesus as your savior and your eternal brother, and you have the spirit as your helper and a guarantee of your eternal life that's coming. That's what you have now on this side. And now you live to wait for Jesus to come from heaven. So let me implore you, keep walking in a manner worthy of the God who called you into such a new hope-filled life. Keep walking. Keep going. Do not give up. Do not give up. You, you know this. You know it, don't you? You know this. The gospel, the gospel has not come to us in vain. The gospel did not come to you in vain. It changed your life. Keep believing it and keep living in light of it. I love that each week we have this immediate application of what we hear. We have a very straightforward way that we can remember, that we can believe, and that we can live out the reality of the gospel. And that's what we come to now in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together and then we'll celebrate. Father in heaven, we uh, we praise you uh, for being the one who is worthy of our lives. We know that we've been created by you. We know that we're created for you. We know that in Christ we've been redeemed to live with you forever. We pray that now, as we obey in this ordinance, that you would spur us on, that you would encourage us by your spirit to live by faith in the one who's coming again. And we pray this all for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.